Welcome to the first episode of the Complete Privacy and Security Podcast. I am Justin Carroll. And I am Michael Bazell, and this podcast will explain how to become digitally invisible. This is the Complete Privacy and Security Podcast. You will eliminate current and future threats toward your privacy and security and take yourself out of the system. When taken to the extreme, you will be impossible to compromise. This first episode is focused on updates to our book that was released in May of 2016 titled The Complete Privacy and Security Desk Reference. We wrote the book as a manual for achieving total privacy and digital security. Now, as with anything new and anything in tech, things get outdated, new services arrive, and some simply disappear. We hope to use this podcast as an avenue to deliver readers all of the updated content that Justin and I are researching on a daily basis. So as Mike mentioned, uh, things move very swiftly in the technology sector, the privacy sector. Companies adapt to our techniques. Uh, things change very rapidly. So uh, one of our motivations with this podcast is to be able to get you up-to-date information uh, for how to uh, maintain these techniques and keep the things that we talk about in the book working in spite of those changes. Yeah, you know, Justin and I, we uh, we talk quite a bit about this stuff. And after we released the book, it seemed like every week we were having a conversation on Signal or Wicker or somewhere talking about, man, did you see this or did you see that? I wish we would have had that in the book. And we started talking about ways to update the book and, you know, anything in print is really hard to keep updated. And when, uh, when, when the conversation finally led to a podcast, it just made sense. Let's just do a monthly podcast and let's talk about these ideas and get the updates out there. So for the first couple of episodes here, we're going to be uh, working very rapidly to update uh, the things that have changed just in the few months since we released the Complete Privacy and Security Desk Reference, and it's uh, uh, a pretty considerable amount of stuff. So in future episodes, we're going to get into uh, some more detailed privacy topics, uh, deep dive some other things that we want to talk about that are probably most appropriate for this kind of forum, Uh, but today what you can expect is a really good update to uh, the first half of the complete privacy and security desk reference. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. You know, and one question that Justin and I get a lot is, you know, what motivated you to write this book? And, um, you know, Justin and I have always been privacy advocates. We've always been uh, very into online security and, you know, keeping ourselves as private as we can. And when I met Justin, I started to learn a lot more about the digital security side. I'd already been publishing about hiding from the internet and hiding your stuff online. But uh, to be quite frank, I was not up to par on my digital security. And, and um, you know, Justin and I started talking a lot about that. And on several occasions, we said, man, we should write a book about this stuff. So we're really excited to not only that uh, the sales are strong and that people seem to really associate with the book, but now we're hoping that this podcast can really be the next phase of that type of information. Absolutely. And as far as why the podcast, one reason is I desperately want a good privacy and security podcast to listen to that's end user focused. So many of the security podcasts focus more on uh, enterprise and, and big corporations. Uh, so there's not really much out there just for the individual who's looking to be more secure. Uh, and on the privacy side, man, it's, uh, it's dry out there. 
uh, there's not a whole lot to listen to. Yeah, that's a really great point. There are tons of amazing uh, security podcasts out there, but they are all focused on enterprise and, and more of a NetSec type environment, network security. So we're excited to bring this. You know, and on a, on a personal level with me, I'm seeing a lot of new privacy blogs and privacy podcasts that are simply regurgitating the information in, in our book uh, and simply kind of revisiting everything and explaining what's in the book. And and that's great. I'm glad to see that information out there. But our goal here is really to take off from where the book ended and talk about what's changed. Uh, anyone can read the book, obviously. We really want to get into cutting edge um, things that we're noticing, successes and failures that we're having, executing our own techniques. And again, there's just no way to easily do that in print. So I think that uh, hopefully this podcast will be the replacement for that. Yeah, so we'll we'll go ahead and jump right into chapter one with computer security. So uh, one of the first big things I want to talk about in chapter one is uh, operating system and application updates. Uh, We hit that pretty hard in the book. I hit that uh, repeatedly in my training sessions, and that's probably one of the least sexy pieces of advice I can give is keep your OS up to date and keep your applications up to date. Uh, On the flip side of that, it's probably one of the strongest pieces of advice that I can give. Um, And in the book, we recommend a program called Secunia Personal Software Investigator, Secunia PSI, um, that will do a scan of the programs you have installed on your computer. Um, I am no longer recommending that in training sessions uh, because we also recommend a vast antivirus for Mac and Windows users. Uh, And one of the functions that uh, Avast has recently added is the ability to scan for outdated software. So if you do a full system scan, that's one of the screens that's going to come up is uh, any outdated applications you have on your machine. And being able to take uh, Secunia off of there is kind of a big deal for me uh, because another piece of security wisdom I try to adhere to is have minimum applications possible installed on my system at any given time. Every new uh, program I have installed there is one more thing that can become outdated, one more piece of potential attack surface. Yeah, I agree 100%. I, uh, I started looking at Secunia many years ago, and it, it filled a void. It really was an option that made it easy. It, it made sure that you were keeping things up to date, and it basically checked your computer for out-of-date software and, and you know, it helped you update that stuff. And uh, I'm really excited to see that Avast is now doing this because I also agree that uh, Avast is the best option right now for Mac and Windows users as far as an antivirus. Um, And now that we can multitask that with one program, that's just like Justin said, one less attack surface we have. So I have also ditched Secunia. I'm no longer using that at all. Um, I no longer use Windows computers, so I don't really have a need for that really anyway on that side. But um, yeah, I agree 100%. And I think that uh, Avast is really stepping up, and I'm sure we'll see other antivirus software companies follow suit. And as far as whether or not Avast is catching absolutely everything that's out of date might be a little bit in question. So absolute best practice would be to go through manually and check all your applications. Uh, But we realize that almost no one, including ourselves, have the time or or energy to to do that. This this simplifies the process a little bit. And also kind of staying up to date on the applications that you use. If if you use Veracrypt, for instance, um, if you're kind of staying in the loop on that, you kind of know when an update uh, is coming or has been recently released, and you can uh, you can stay on top of, the, of that a little bit. And uh, again, reducing the, the sheer number of programs on your computer helps in all of that. 
Yeah, I've started a new uh, kind of a new routine. I have my typical weekly and monthly routines. Uh, weekly routines include things like seat cleaner and and bleach bit and all that. But on a monthly routine now, I'm actually going through all my applications on my primary operating systems, revisiting every application and just asking myself, have I even used this in the last month? Do I need this on my computer anymore? And if the answer is no, it just comes off completely. I can always reinstall later. Um, I, like Justin said, I'm a huge fan of having the most minimal applications and software required on your machine because you're just simply eliminating more and more vulnerabilities by not having them present in the first place. You had a couple other things to talk about in Chapter 1, correct? Yeah, there's a couple uh, things I just wanted to mention. Um, I have recently tried a small application made by a company called O&O Software, and it's called O&O Shut Up 10. Awful name. Um, I call it OOSU 10, which just, I guess, is a, equally as awful, but maybe a little bit better. But here's the main idea. Um, it's yet another Windows tool to help you establish privacy from Microsoft. And we've seen a lot of these pop up. You and I mentioned a kind of the concept in the book that companies or usually uh, concerned individuals make a small application that simply monitors your Microsoft Windows operating system for any privacy violations. Things like um, whether or not you have it turned on to send certain reports back to Microsoft or whether or not Microsoft has certain tools enabled that lets them see what you're doing online or on your computer. Now, the problem with these is the majority of people that have made these applications have not updated them. Therefore, the moment that you update your Windows 10 operating system, which we believe you should, it shuts down those options or it reverses the changes that you made. O&O Software has a free utility and they've been updating it quite a bit. And that's a good sign, the fact that they just keep updating it for all the changes that come out from Windows. But, but here's the one thing I really like about it. You start the application, which by the way, it's just a portable application. There's no install, no registry rights. It's just a portable EXE file. And it looks at your privacy settings on your computer and it offers you to change them within this app. You can change them manually one at a time or you can change them according to what they consider are the most recommended uh, options. But, but here's the one thing I really like. When you install a Microsoft Windows update and reboot your machine, this software can detect any changes that Microsoft made to those settings and offer you the option to revert them. So instead of making your operating system as private as you can and installing a Windows update and then Windows changing all that on you so that you just undid all of your work, this will detect that and let you within one button say, no, put it back the way it was. So, you know, there's lots of these out there. I just thought that this was a pretty good one that we could use to at least see what Microsoft's collecting about us and have the option to change it. Man, that's uh, that's really cool. Windows 10, I've, I've migrated completely away from Windows since Windows 10, and that's a, a really nice feature set that that program offers. Yeah, I've also completely migrated away from Microsoft. Um, you know, I do have a few virtual machines that run it, and during my training, of course, we have to tackle it, just like you have to tackle it yeah. in your training. So uh, at least we have an option. So as of right now, this moment in this podcast, I guess I, I would recommend this over the other options. That could always change. My recommendation would be if you're listening to this much uh, after it was recorded, just take a look at their revision history and see what changes they've made. And if you haven't seen an update in the past couple of months, you probably have an outdated product. But if you see that they are continuing to update it, I have a little more faith in what they're doing in the software. So that was just kind of one thing I wanted to throw out there. Also, 
more of just a, I guess maybe a, more of a news topic. Uh, we talk about browser security uh, in chapter two, which is coming up, but uh, Microsoft Edge, Microsoft's Windows 10 web browser is now going to be including sandboxing in future releases. What this basically means is the browser will isolate itself from anywhere else on your computer. If you get in malware through your web browser, well, it doesn't put malware in your operating system. I like the idea of this. I like the direction. I'm a little concerned about how Microsoft will execute this. It sounds like it might slow things down a bit. And I think I can speak for Justin and I both. We don't use Microsoft browsers. But I think this is important to talk about because I hope that this encourages other more sophisticated web browsers to maybe take the same stance. Um, Justin, any concerns you have about this type of behavior in web browsers? Uh, no. So one thing on that, Chrome has had per tab sandboxes uh, for quite some time now. I, I think it's a great feature. Um, I, I wish Firefox would implement something along these lines. Uh, and I don't, see, I don't see any real security or privacy downside to it. Uh, performance might be the big thing on the hit list there, but um, yeah. again, that's that's convenience, which this isn't the complete convenience podcast, so <laughs> we don't care, right? You, you know, I'm still kind of surprised. It, it just it seems weird to me that we still don't have a perfect web browser. You know, Firefox is great, and I, I, I love Firefox as a web browser, but it's not perfect. Chrome is a great web browser, but it's a Google product. Microsoft is Microsoft, so there's it seems like we still don't have that perfect thing for all-around use. Do you think we'll ever see that? Opera, I've been using quite a bit, but uh, their international ownership is a little bit sure sketchy and questionable. So I have uh, I have some reservations about moving to them. It's still a compromise of in some form or fashion, and we're kind of already moving into chapter two into the web browser security stuff. But it's hard to only have one right now because, like you and I talked about yesterday, if you want to have Signal on your desktop, you have to have Chrome. If you want to run NoScript on most of the websites that you visit, you have to have Firefox. Uh, so it's still very much a compromise of choosing one feature set over the other. And for my personal use, I use Firefox for 90% of things, Opera for 1% of things, and Chrome and Safari for the other 9% in the middle there. But yeah, there, yeah, there's definitely no perfect. Yeah, and I think shot. that... Uh... I think that any person that's interested in privacy should have multiple browsers on their computer, which we'll, we'll talk about. Uh, we talk about it in the book quite a bit, and we can kind of touch on it again in the next section. But um, I think everyone should have multiple browsers. And, you know, one thing that readers um, may be interested in is when you and I write a book together, we actually each take a lead on certain chapters. So uh, every chapter in the book, one of us has taken the lead on it. We, of course, both uh, contribute quite a bit to the chapter. But we try to base that upon our own strengths and weaknesses on the type of stuff that we're into. So chapter two is all about web browser security. And that's one that Justin definitely had the lead on because that's something he's much uh, more adverse at than I am. And there's so much information in that chapter about securing your web browsers. You, you can't just download a web browser and say, okay, I'm secure. I'm ready to go. And Justin did a really good job of identifying all of those areas that you really need to tweak in order to have the most secure uh, session possible. Justin, can you kind of talk about any updates that you've seen since the book was released in May? So a couple of things on that. Firefox, uh, one of the browser extensions that we recommended called Better Privacy, which deletes LSO cookies. Uh, I've replaced that with a add-on called self-destructing cookies and what self-destructing cookies does it doesn't require that you close the whole browser every time you close a tab 
it will clear the history and delete the cookies uh, to include LSOs, which are the much more persistent flash cookies. Uh, it'll delete those on a per tab basis. Uh, so let's say I'm logged into uh, my ProtonMail account and I don't want to log out to go do something else. I can open that other tab for Facebook, log into Facebook. As soon as I close the Facebook tab, that cookie's gone, that history's gone, and now I can go do whatever else I was doing or planning to do on my browser without having to worry about that Facebook cookie uh, remaining and tracking me around the internet. Does that make sense, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, the majority of internet users probably don't even think about these types of things. And even those that are security conscious and privacy conscious don't think to that level of, do I need to worry about these things? You know, Companies are always going to try to track you. That's a, a financial motivation so they can sell your data, sell your uh, shopping history or whatever. As we develop better technology to protect ourselves, they're going to develop better technology to track us. Back in the late 90s, early 2000s when the internet was young, it was just simple cookies or you know simple temporary internet files and it was pretty basic to block those or get rid of those. Well, now that practically every security plugin in the world offers this, these companies are getting better about storing um, stuff on your computer. So I think it's important that we keep updating the techniques that we use to also block this stuff. So I'm glad to see that out there and I'm glad to see that there's some kind of an update to what we were doing in the past. Yeah, that's a super easy add-on to install. It gives you a, a notification confirmation as soon as those cookies have been deleted so you don't have a question remaining in your mind about whether they're still there. Really, really like it. Whereas uh, better privacy, you would get a tiny little pop-up right when you close Firefox, and if you weren't watching, uh, you couldn't see it, and it's hard to retrieve that data, so hard to get that positive confirmation. The other thing that I wanted to talk about briefly, and uh, we can just kind of kick this one around a little bit because I don't have a, uh, I don't have a firm opinion on it yet, but it is the built-in VPN in Opera. Have you played with that at all? I have. Um, love the idea. And my only complaint is, and I, I believe this may not even be a complaint anymore, when, it, when they first rolled it out, there was lots of uh, downtime. Basically, there were some crashes. And I think that was just simply Opera not really prepared for the, the amount of people that would want to be using this. Um, I think maybe they weren't really ready for the traffic that they were getting. So they definitely had some growing pains, I think. I talked to a lot of people on my web forum, on the uh, Intel Techniques Open Source Intelligence Forum, and um, they were trying it, but they were just having bad luck with it. However, that all has died out, and now I'm hearing better things. You know, I, I love the idea, built-in VPN into a browser. I think it's great for a secondary uh, VPN. I would never rely on it completely because, of, as I'm sure most people know, it's just protecting your web traffic in that browser, not your overall traffic on the computer. Yeah, so I've seen somewhat mixed results with that sometimes. Uh, sometimes I'll enable the VPN, allow it to connect. Uh, you can click the little drop down there and it'll show you when it's connected. And then it will still, I'll still have trouble connecting to really basic sites like Amazon.com or Google.com. Other times it works fine. But like you pointed out, this is not a replacement for a VPN that protects all the traffic going on and off of your computer. Yeah, one use I see for it is um, if I would get to a website that blocks my VPN, which I, I use PIA, I'm very open about that, and a lot more sites are starting to block PIA. Like, for example, Craigslist. I, if I go to Craigslist and my PIA is connected, it just won't let me connect because of the VPN. Well, maybe I could have Opera use their VPN, go ahead and get the connection from Craigslist, but I'm, my computer itself is still on a, a standard VPN. So I, I think there's use out there. I'm just not sure how I will be executing that. 
Yeah, I, I think it's great in maybe very limited applications, but it's definitely not a replacement for an actual VPN. And you also wanted to talk about Men Browser. I've heard a lot of things about Men Browser. I haven't installed it and played with it yet. Yeah, I like it. Um, I actually I heard about this through a friend, um, Jr. And basically, he said, uh, "Hey, there's a new browser. It's very minimal. It's actually called Min M I N." And um, I have when I was actually making a video on this for my online video training, I it, it kept sound like I was saying Min M E N. So I'll, I'll try to clarify this yeah, that a, I really like the browser Min M I N. Yeah, I don't I don't recommend the other one. <laughs> so. Um, the Min browser, now it's going to sound awful. It's basically a very, very low footprint browser. It's very small. There's no bells and whistles. There's nothing special to it. It's literally just a box where you see the web page that you're on. There's no security implications here. There's, there's no privacy that it affords you. There's nothing it's doing to protect you whatsoever. But what I like about it is it's another option that I have. So if I'm shopping for something and I know that where I'm Maybe I'm on Firefox shopping. I know that the website I'm on has my my fingerprint, so to speak. And if I go to another website through Firefox at that time, there's going to be some communication and some connection. Or I can switch over to the Min browser and go check the next website I want to check on that one. And now there's not that connection. So there, there's, again, nothing special about this browser except for the fact that it's extremely small, very, very fast. And there's it's just a simple web browser. There's nothing else to it. It's not robust. I use it for when I want to go to something quickly and I don't want that connection to be associated with my web browser where I have, say, my email open or I'm logged into something because we all know that those connections get associated really quickly through your cookies and through your fingerprints. So it's an option out there. Um, I keep it on my OSX operating system and it's available for all the main flavors of operating systems. It's not my primary, secondary. It's like my fifth browser I use when I just have a quick thing I want to check. Which brings up another great point, browser fingerprinting. So Firefox with the things that we recommend in the book, no script and disconnect and uh, self-destructing cookies now, really great security, but that has some privacy implications because your fingerprint becomes really, really unique when you visit a website. And pretty much all the big websites are browser fingerprinting users because of things like ad blockers and no script. So I use, uh, I mentioned I use like five different browsers, um, and some of those are for very specific purposes, like Opera. If I want to, if I want to manage my alias Facebook page, I'm going to go through Opera with nothing on it, completely plain, and that's all I use Opera for is to log into that Facebook page, post an update, or whatever it is. Uh, but I don't want to do that for my my Firefox that's heavily modified. There is a need for multiple browsers other than just the uh, the security implications or the convenience of being able to use different apps or that sort of thing. Yeah, another point on that is uh, if I'm creating a profile on a social network, uh, a covert profile, of course, uh, say Facebook, and I use my Firefox browser with all my privacy extensions blocking all these things I don't want to go out about me, well, now I get scrutinized because I look weird to them. So when you go to a social network, create a new account, but you're blocking everything, you're scrutinized because you look fake or you look like you're trying to hide something. So you could use an, uh, a, a web browser like Min or Opera that has maybe nothing else blocking there just so that you look normal, but yet you're not sacrificing information about your connected accounts through your primary browser. And that's kind of how we feel about sending do not track requests to in all the yeah. settings. Um, sites have no legal obligation to honor those. 
Uh, and the sites that aren't going to track you probably aren't going to anyway, so it just makes you that much more unique and distinctive from everyone else. Go yeah, ahead. great stuff. So, um, yeah, that's Chapter 2, Web Browser Security, uh, an entire chapter just on that. Chapter 3 was all about preparation, and I took the lead on this chapter based on my research that I did from my Hiding from the Internet series. And the whole concept of Chapter 3 is now that you have a secure computer and you have a secure web browser, it's time to prepare other things so that when you start your transition into removing your data online, you're prepared. You have things like a, an anonymous email set up. You have an anonymous forwarding service set up. You have all these things in place so that when the time comes and a company demands information from you, you have your covert information ready to go. Uh, a couple of updates to that. The first is I am now recommending GMX as an email provider only for people that do want to create fictitious or covert online social network accounts. We don't specifically talk in the book about making fake accounts. That's that's not what part of the preparation chapter is. But we do talk about things like Gmail and other email services. And of course, we have a lot to say about Google products and how much they, they track about you. But also, we we admit that we do need these things in place. Now, later on in the book, we talk about secure email accounts. But in chapter three, we need junk email accounts. And what we've noticed is companies like Facebook and Twitter are now blocking 33Mail, Mailinator, um, you know, all the typical mail forwarding services. They're just blocking them because they know now. But one service I've noticed they are still not blocking is GMX. And GMX is just a free email provider. It is not a secure email provider. It is not encrypted. It is not private. But it's a place you could go create a junk account for free. And then when you go to create that fake Facebook page and use your gmx.com email address, they often do not require a cell phone from you. And I've had a couple of my readers report uh, through the open source side that gmx.com addresses are occasionally fl uh, getting triggered through Facebook to provide a cell phone number as a follow-up. And what we found is when you create your new gmx.com account, you have the option, it's a drop-down box, to create a gmx.us account. And while Facebook is starting in their early stages to ask for more verification for gmx.com users, they do not appear to be doing it for gmx.us users. My recommendation is go to gmx.com, create a new email account, and make it a gmx.us account. Now, remember, this is your junk account, nothing important, nothing personal, no intense conversations in there. It's going to be a junk account for the day when you want to create maybe a disinformation account for Facebook. Yeah, so I'll, I'll just caveat on that a little more. I think GMX caps you at maybe a 16-character password, which mm. is just garbage, and yeah. do not support two-factor authentication. So this is only for uh, for those kind of limited use cases like uh, like Michael mentioned there. Yeah, yeah, I found it great for Facebook. Just creating a Facebook account seems to work pretty well with it. Uh, anything else, I wouldn't trust anything else in the service at all. Yeah, I've abused GMX pretty thoroughly in the past, and they, they don't ask for a lot of information. I haven't had a lot of issues with them, but I'm also not doing anything personal or sensitive in there. Yeah, it's one of the only services I've found that do not require an email address or a phone number to create an account. Uh, usually, you know, your Yahoo's, Gmail's, Hotmail's, et cetera, at least require an email address from you. GMX just seems to not care. And I don't know if that's just because they don't have the uh, the usage that 
these services have or uh, if they just don't care. I'm not sure. Yeah, you're Yahoo. Yeah, we'll, we'll have more to talk about Yahoo in a little <laughs> bit. Uh, one other thing I, I'm really into right now is FireRTC, uh, F-I-R-E-R-T-C. And again, this is not a private service. I don't want to build this up as uh, any kind of encrypted type thing. But FireRTC is basically a voice over IP phone line that you can make outgoing calls from on your computer. Now, we talk in the book a lot in the cell phone section about different apps that let, that'll give you a new phone number and let you make and receive calls within your phone that are not tied to your mobile carrier. This is different. This only allows you to make outgoing calls. But there's two big factors I really like about this. First, they have an app. Now, it is a Google app, but remember, we're only using this for junk. So it allows you to download an app to your computer, and when you launch that app... It gives you a dial pad and you can make a phone call to anywhere in Canada or the United States that you want. You get a free call and basically it's a junk way to have a throwaway outgoing account. So for example, I just used this the other day. I needed some car maintenance done. Of course, that's not in my name. And I just called from my desktop using this app and they don't have my cell phone number or anything else. But there's one other area that I really like about this you can actually set your caller ID to be anything you want. And this really surprised me. When you log into your junk account, and by the way, Justin, they do allow 33mail.com accounts to sign up. I was surprised at that. And you can pick any caller ID you want. So you can be coming from uh, any the library. You could pick the library's phone number, put that in, and then when you call people on this app – it will tell them on their caller ID that the library is calling them or anywhere else that you pick. A um, couple things to keep in mind. There's no incoming calls, so no one can call you back. Keep that in mind. Also, there's no texting. It's basically nothing more than a very, very convenient and easy way to make a phone call and be anyone that you want just for those junk phone calls. No privacy protection, no security protection, so just keep that in mind. Okay, so chapter four covered the self-pre-assessment. Mike, you also took the lead on that chapter, and uh, I don't think we have anything to really update too much on that, correct? No, actually, the next two chapters were my lead, uh, self-pre-assessment and self-background check, and they're very related, but they do have two purposes. The self-pre-assessment uh, section was more about taking a quick look about what is available on you on the internet through detailed Google searching and other search engines just to identify what kind of damage you have to clean up. And there really are no big updates because uh, the, the tactics that we talk about are still very valid. The self-background check gets a little more in-depth where we talk about not only checking uh, under the hood on your social network accounts, but also requesting your reports from places like rent bureaus and LexisNexis and all these places. And it, it walks you through how to request a report to find out what anyone doing a background check on you would see. And overall, not many changes there, but every time we do have any kind of change, we of course update our links on our websites, which are completely free, uh, and you don't need any kind of password or actually you don't even have to own the book. We do put all of our links from the book online. So chapters five and six, nothing, uh, correction, chapters four and five, nothing really to report there. Uh, chapter six was online account security, and we've got quite a bit on that. I'll let Justin kind of take the lead on that. That was his chapter. I took the lead on that, and we basically talked about uh, from start to finish, securing your online accounts. And there's not a whole lot that has changed there. Uh, we still want to use good, strong passwords. We still want to use unique usernames. We still want to maybe try to just limit the number of online accounts we have if we can help it, that sort of thing. 
one major thing has changed since that chapter was published, though. So NIST recently, quote, deprecated, unquote, SMS as a two-factor authentication factor because of the ease of which some people have been able to defeat SMS. And it basically involves uh, either hacking uh, your wireless provider's account and then forwarding your phone number. Uh, so if your username and password are compromised, uh, it's a pretty safe bet that your wireless provider account is probably not safe either. And once they can forward those text messages, your two-factor authentication is completely circumvented. And that was maybe a little bit faulty to begin with because that's something that's not actually held on that device that you possess, that second physical authentication factor. So NIST has, has recommended moving away from that. Now, my advice on that is if a website, I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head that only offers... Uh, GoDaddy. Yeah, GoDaddy.com. They only offer SMS as a second authentication factor. Uh, that being the case, I'm not going to turn off two-factor authentication. It's still way, way better than nothing, and it's still a major hurdle for someone to cross that's trying to get into your account. But if they had another option, uh, like a software token that I could use with Authy, or if I could use a hardware token like a YubiKey, I would absolutely migrate to that and never look back. Um, so if something has an option other than SMS, I recommend you go to it. And also, be aware that things like Google, um, Google offers pretty much every option under the sun as a second authentication factor, including SMS, software tokens through Google Authenticator or Authy, hardware tokens uh, like the U2F FIDO key. The problem with those are they all require a working phone number, and that will always be your backup. So if if you're attempting to log into your account and don't have your YubiKey, you can say, I don't have my YubiKey, send me a text message. So that authentication scheme is really only as strong as the backup. If you can backdoor the YubiKey by saying, hey, send me a text message, uh, then it really doesn't matter what your strongest factor is. The whole system's only as strong as that weakest link. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, SMS as a two-factor authentication for me is often uh, a little bit of an issue because... Uh, as we talk about in the book, I don't give out my cell phone number to anyone ever for any reason. So therefore, I, I would never use my cell phone carrier and my real cell phone number as a second factor because now I'm, I'm connecting that number to me. Um, so I try to use uh, like the the Google option, the, the Google Authy app to do that. Um, I'm a huge cheerleader for YubiKey. I really like hardware-based uh, two-factor and uh, my email provider that I use uh, allows me to use a YubiKey as uh, the only two-factor if I set that up that way. So I do like things like that. Um, a couple people have been asking me recently, well, should I use voice over IP numbers as my second factor? And, and there's pros and cons to that. Uh, the pros are that if you are using, say, Google second two-factor authentication through a Google account, they have a Google has extremely good security. I, I think no one will deny that their security is top-notch. It's just their privacy issues that are the issue. Um, so the, 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 the pros are you get that, but um, the cons are, well, what if your account gets hacked? What if somebody gets into that Google Voice account or something like that? So one thing I do is I have one specific Google Voice account that I use for any companies that will only offer SMS two-factor authentication. And that specific Google Voice account 
is two-factor authenticated with a YubiKey, a hardware token. So the only way you can get that second factor message is to get into my account, and you do need the YubiKey for that. Now, I don't want to be naive. There, there's hacks out there, and there are hackers that are much smarter than I am that could probably find ways to get in. You have to determine what is your attack surface and what is, you know, what are you really worried about. So I agree with Justin. If SMS is the only two-factor option you have, of course, use it. But uh, I also, anytime I can use a YubiKey, that is my first preference. And uh, if I can't use a YubiKey, uh, hopefully they'll take Google Authy or something like that that I can use. So an another problem that I constantly run into with SMS, I live a 20-minute drive from a major city, but somehow I still don't get good phone coverage yeah. in my house. So that's, that's a constant source of frustration. Yeah, and that's concerning, you know, if you do get locked out that way. So, you know, I've heard, especially I just, I taught a Black Hat course and I went to a couple of, of uh, presentations while I was at Black Hat and there were some people talking about the insecurities of using voice over IP for two-factor authentication. So I'm, I'm definitely aware of it. Um, I just, I, I, for me, it makes more sense to go ahead and go that route. But again, if the other options are out there, I think that's always the way to go. Yeah, and a couple of things. A couple of services are doing it correctly. Amazon.com, for instance, just recently, they were so, so late to the party, but finally got on board with two-factor, and they allow you the option of using SMS or Google Authenticator, and you don't have to provide one to use the other. So you can just use Google Authenticator without providing them a phone number, which I think is absolutely wonderful. And Fastmail's like that too, right? You can use uh, like a YubiKey on Fastmail without providing a cell phone number so that there is no – it's not like a hacker if they do have your phone number. And let's just say they even have your phone. It still doesn't get them in your account without that YubiKey. Right. Right. So one other thing that I wanted to address in online account security is to ask for listener help on filling in that chart on banking security. So we had – have a chart in the book that has several factors about basically trying to assess the most secure online banks. Uh, we listed several. We listed the maximum length of password they let you use, whether or not you can change your username to a random string. Um, and our intent was to open up bank accounts at all those banks. But as we'll talk about in chapter nine, we've run into a couple of issues with credit freezes and we're pretty quickly shut down with trying to open new checking accounts. So if anyone banks with any of those banks that are not completely filled in, we would absolutely love to hear from you. Obviously, we don't want any personal information, but that would be greatly appreciated. Yeah, and uh, I've had issues as well because of my credit freeze. And, um, you know, Justin and I have tried to disappear off radar as much as we can, and the, which is a great thing to do. But there are sometimes side effects of that, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Um, and now I, I think if I walked into any bank to open a new account, I, I don't think that would happen. I think there would be so many red flags on my account by now that they would kick me out. I think it was back in January. I actually got locked out of my bank accounts, called to get unlocked, and they could not verify who I was. Uh, and they said that LexisNexis was reporting that I was dead. So... Success. You That's, win. <laughs> yeah, that took a while to clear up. Good stuff. Um, also in Chapter 6 on my end, um, I know we were just talking about YubiKey, and I, I'll try to keep this uh, from being a YubiKey love fest. But uh, again, I, I, a huge fan of YubiKey. I think it's a, an extreme, just a great two-factor authentication. For those that don't know, a YubiKey is a USB device, and you have to have that physical USB device on you in order to finish your login through the second factor. Um, 
So like my email, if I don't have my YubiKey, then I don't have my emails. But anyway, um, they are constantly adding new partners and new companies that are accepting uh, the YubiKey as a second factor. And I wanted to point out one thing that uh, this came up during one of my training events. Dashlane is a password security program. And it basically, it's a database. It allows you to store your passwords securely. It's an encrypted database. And they have one feature, well, kind of two features that I really like. Um, I don't put any of my extremely sensitive passwords in any web-based password management utility. Uh, I do use LastPass. I use it more for my junk that uh, if it, you know, if it did get stolen out there, it wouldn't be devastating. But I don't put my primary email password in LastPass. But I also use LastPass with a YubiKey. But back to Dashlane, Dashlane has a pretty cool option to where you can actually turn off all syncing. So you can install Dashlane, turn off the syncing option, put all your passwords in it, and secure it with a YubiKey. And if you were to go that route, it's not connecting to their web servers. It's not sharing your encrypted data. It's simply letting you use that program as a standalone app that is basically only storing the content on your computer. Now, Justin and I are big fans of KeePass. I, I use KeePass for all of my passwords, whether the passwords are on LastPass or not. Uh, KeePass keeps all of my passwords. And uh, YubiKey does have a tutorial, a really good tutorial now, of how you can secure your KeePass application with a YubiKey. Now, keep in mind, this is only for KeePass Professional, which is free, but it is the more recent version of KeePass. And their tutorial only covers the Windows operating system. So if you are a Mac or Unix, uh, Linux, sorry, dated myself. If you are a Mac or Linux user, um, you are not, you can still use KeePass with a YubiKey, but the setup is not the same. It's, it's quite more convoluted, but it is possible. Uh, but if you are a Windows user using KeePass, I highly recommend go get this tutorial. And if you have a YubiKey, connect it to it. And now no one can log into your KeePass database without the YubiKey present as well. So YubiKey or, or correction, KeePass or Dashlane, those are just two options where you could use a hardware second factor token without sharing your data to the cloud and it would only be stored locally on your machine. So I just kind of want to update that with a couple of options. I played with both. I like KeePass. It's free. It's open source. Uh, I, I'm kind of stuck on that. Justin, what, what's your take on your current password management solution? I'm using KeePass X on Mac. Uh, yeah, same here. And mini KeePass on iOS and KeePass for Droid on my Android devices. KeePass is definitely not as user-friendly, not as streamlined and sleek as Dashlane or LastPass. I definitely think the security is there, and I really like the interoperability. If you have that KBDX file format. You can open it in any KeePass fork. It's easy to pull a database from your phone to your computer or vice versa. Really, really handy there. Uh, again, maybe missing some of the features that I liked about LastPass or Dashlane, but uh, being able to keep everything locally on one machine and one machine only is totally worth it to me. I don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole here, but I'm also a huge, huge fan of the YubiKey. Uh, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so um, I've been using it for quite some time, uh, I, and I use it anywhere that I can. And also, I pick services that are known to accept the YubiKey just because I want to you know, sponsor yeah, and promote absolutely. those services. Uh, so my email provider, my primary email provider, um, when I log into it, I have to have my username, which, by the way, is not my email address. That's an extra layer of security. I have to have my extremely long password and 
then I have to enter my YubiKey. I have to hit a small button on the YubiKey, which basically just kind of charges it and activates it. YubiKey then sends a unique hashed code to my email provider. My email provider verifies that that's connected to my YubiKey, which is on my account, and then I'm into my email. Yeah, uh, and, this if, is, and this is actually, on the on the newer YubiKeys, this is actually a rolling code. It's not the same yeah. code every single time. So Absolutely. once you associate that YubiKey with an account, you can place it in static mode, so it just dumps a static password into desktop applications. But once you associate that with an online account like you're talking about, it will look for a different code from that device right. every single time. And one thing I've done with that is that the YubiKeys can actually hold two. So when I tap my YubiKey, it's a rolling code that changes every time that gets checked to make sure that it is matched to my account. And then if I hold my finger on the YubiKey for more than two seconds, it will actually enter my static codes. There are a couple of applications that do not allow a rolling code, and I have to have a very long, unique code um, that's the same every time. And so I like YubiKey for that because... Uh, I don't have to go copy and paste that 200-digit password out of my password manager. I can just use my YubiKey by holding it down for two seconds. It will enter that static code, and YubiKey gives you an application to program that into your device. Um, yeah. And I also I use YubiKey with my LastPass. Uh, again, I, I do use LastPass. I don't use it for everything, but I've also tweaked out my LastPass settings so that I've disabled a lot of the features of LastPass that might jeopardize your privacy a bit, and I've enabled some features that helps your security. For example, um, you can't connect to my LastPass account from a Tor IP address. So if a hacker's using a Tor account, that would block them right away. So um, my primary email, my password manager, which right now uh, is KeePass and LastPass, all of those take a YubiKey and... The one thing I would just specify is if you're going to use a YubiKey, which, by the way, I think is the best way to do it, I would highly recommend that you have a backup YubiKey. Buy two. Spend the extra money. Buy two of them. Have a backup and put that backup with your off-site data backup so that way when you lose your YubiKey, which I think you and I have both, both lost them before, you've got a backup to kind of get back into your account. Yeah, one other thing on that. Uh, the YubiKey Nano is basically sized to fit perfectly into a USB port and barely protrude. It's kind of tricky to actually get out. So that's what I use. Yeah, same here. It sits in one of my USB ports and it never comes out. So hopefully that doesn't fall out in the middle of an airport somewhere and I lose it. But <laughs> that's that's kind of a measure too. It just never comes out. Now, if someone gets my computer and manages to get into it and get into my passwords, then they have that. But I think at that point you have bigger problems in yeah. life. Yeah, yeah. And, and I also use I use the uh, Flush Nano as well, and then I use the full size as my backups. Um, so yeah, again, you know, and and to be quite transparent, we are not paid to say that about YubiKey, and YubiKey is not a sponsor of the show, at least not for this episode. Maybe we should reach yet. out to them. <laughs> but uh, I, I think that that's a. Uh, I just think you can't beat that level of protection versus uh, SMS attacks and stuff like that. So, okay, we'll, we'll move on. Chapter seven, social networks. Um, again, no big updates here. You know, the social networks chapter was kind of twofold. It was to talk about privacy settings, but then also talk about account deletion. And for us, we don't really see a, a need for any privacy responsible person to have social networks that announce personal information. Now, I have a Twitter account, but it's my business Twitter account, and it just talks about uh, this type of stuff. I will promote this podcast on that Twitter account. Yeah, my, what you won't you won't see where I'm going to be going to lunch tomorrow. My Twitter account 
tweets my blog posts and occasionally I'll right. tweet some security related thing, but yeah. So chapter seven gets, just got more into, if you do want to delete your account, here's the ways to properly do it. For example, uh, you know, the book talks about, I don't recommend, um, deleting your Twitter account with all of your tweets in place. I think a better strategy is delete all of your tweets and leave your Twitter account open for quite some time so that cached copies of that account get replenished with empty data. So overall, not much about chapter seven. Chapter eight was all about personal data removal. And chapter eight is probably the longest chapter of the book because um, I encompassed all of my personal data removal um, resources into one chapter. So it's, it's almost like a workbook to where you would go through and you'd go to Spokio and people and PeepDB and all these different services to remove your information. And we did it like a workbook that you could fill out when you removed it, whether you were successful or not. So overall, the only updates to that chapter are just new services that you need to go remove your data from. And the way we handle that is, again, we update our website with our links. The links are completely free. Um, we'll give you our websites at the end of this episode. But basically, uh, for example, if you go to privacy-training.com, go to the link section, there's a, a whole section for chapter eight. And every link for data removal from that book is in that chapter. So that's the biggest thing. The only thing I can kind of comment on is the service Nuber, and that's N-U-W-B-E-R. Um, they are a data mining website that have probably most Americans' addresses and home phone numbers in it. And their opt-out option is no longer being monitored, and they are simply not removing opt-out requests. So... If your data is on Nuber.com and you go through their opt-out process, nothing happens. The only success I've found is email blasts, a daily email to them demanding your data be removed. Uh, at some point, they usually cave in. And I've had a, a couple of my law enforcement uh, attendees say that they, it took them a daily email for about 30 days. So they finally just said, fine, we took your data off. Leave us alone in so many words. Um, so that's chapter eight. Uh, chapter nine, credit companies, that was my lead. And um, the one thing I want to talk about on that is, like Justin kind of mentioned earlier, we are starting to get into some issues of problems because of the actions we've taken. And I, and I consider these good problems. I don't consider them bad problems. But, uh, but I went – go that ahead, That is Justin. something that, that we don't want to downplay. There are second right. and third order effects to being off the grid. Part of that is – having to occasionally deal with something like this. Yeah. So my situation recently was uh, I'm looking to get a new business credit card and they only use Experian as a, a, a credit bureau to check your credit. And I have a code to unfreeze my Experian account. And it doesn't work because, as Justin mentioned earlier, Experian cannot confirm I'm alive or where I live. And it's not like I'm I'm just helpless here. Uh, the solution is I would need to send them a copy of my government ID or state driver's license and then wait 30 days and then they will give me a new code. So I, I can fix the problem, but I can't fix it right now. So we don't want to downplay that sometimes if you go this far with everything, these credit companies can't see any information about you. Therefore, they don't know if you exist or not. Therefore, they block you out of their systems. Now, I consider that a success. But to be fair, we want you to know that if you go all the way through the book, you might have the same issue. I guess one of my issues with this is that clearing up a problem with your credit or a problem with one of these major data brokers can sometimes feel like you're just throwing information into a black hole. There's, it's really hard to actually get a, anyone on the phone to talk to. 
I've been given some phone numbers and it's all a pre-recorded message asking me yeah. to send utility bills or whatever in yep. my name to, uh, to that location. So clearing that up can be a, a, a bit of a headache, but again, for the privacy that we enjoy, it's totally worth it. Yeah. And, uh, I've had absolute zero success, uh, over the phone on any of that. Uh, the only success I've found is by mailing in the required documentation, which is a pain. I, I like, like your license and a utility bill. It, it's a pain, but again, I welcome that. And, and I, and one half of me was a little upset that I couldn't get done what I wanted to do, but the other half was smirking saying, you don't know where I live. You don't know if I'm alive or not. I have no utilities that you know of. And it's been a couple of years I've been that way. So it felt pretty good. Yeah. Uh, so moving into chapter 10 into anonymous purchases. So this chapter covered everything from using cash to prepaid credit cards to gift cards to uh, services like Blur. And one thing that I wanted to add in that did not get covered in the book that actually a big fan was kind enough to tip us off to is a service called Amazon Locker. So uh, I've written quite a bit about using Amazon anonymously. We wrote about it in the book. Uh, we've both talked about it in trainings. And we both kind of came to the conclusion that you can have anything you want sent to your house as long as it isn't shipped in your name. If it's shipped in someone else's name and paid for privately, uh, you don't have a lot to worry about. But Amazon Locker does give you one other really, really good option. Now this kind of depends on where you live and if you live within proximity uh, or travel frequently to, uh, to a bigger city that has Amazon lockers, you order your package, they sh drop it off at this locker and they send you a code to your email account. You walk up to the locker, you type the code in and you pick up your package. Um, it doesn't matter what name it's shipped in, um, it doesn't associate anything with any home address. All it ties it to is the location of that Amazon locker. So if you live right across the street from one, probably wouldn't recommend using it in that instance. But otherwise, uh, let's say you live in the outskirts of a city and commute in every day, stop at your Amazon locker on the way to work or on the way home, completely private way to do business. Yeah, I, I really like it. I like the idea of it. Um, but I also, I, I kind of like it as a possible disinformation campaign. If I'm going to be traveling, uh, let's say I live in New York City, but I'm going to be in San Francisco for an event, um, I might have a package sent to me, paid by me in my name to a locker in San Francisco, and I'll pick it up while I'm there. That if there is a trail being created and stored, that would really be a bit of disinformation as it's on the other side of the country. Now, to be fair, that that data is probably not going public. It's probably not going to get, get you much. I'm just trying to think outside the box of ways you could use this not only to protect your privacy, but also to provide disinformation. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think they're a great idea. Um, I agree with Justin. If there's one across the street from you, don't use that one. Use the one that's a city over, kind of like we talk about with P.O. boxes. Don't use the P.O. box in your city. Use one the next city over. So the, the other thing that we wanted to address is a service called privacy.com. Uh, and this is relatively new. Uh, right now, it's still in its infancy, and it's still by invitation only. So you have to go to their website. You have to sign up for an invite. And I've signed up for a couple with a couple different addresses. And I've had to wait. Uh, I've gotten one invite back. The other one I still have not gotten back. Uh, the wait time is pretty good on these. Uh, I'm going to say around 90 days at a minimum. I think that's the fastest turnaround I've seen on one of these. 
So can I throw something there real quick? Um, I contacted privacy.com and I've talked with them and they have been giving me some referrals. Now, I can't give everyone who listens here uh, an invite, but um, the first five people that email me through my website, I have invites for you. Uh, and those are courtesy of privacy.com, basically uh, sending them to me as promotional. Uh, again, I'm not paid or anything for those, but um, my goal is to convince privacy.com that our audience is a great audience for them, and hopefully we can get unlimited invites. So the first five people email me uh, through my website. I will take, I will hook you up, get you an invite, sign up, and uh, Justin, I'll let you kind of take over from there. How about the first five people that email us a good listener question? Ah, even better. All right. I'll let you, I'll let you take that in a moment. Good, good point. We'll address that at the end of the show. Perfect. So what privacy.com does, you associate a bank account with it. Uh, It has good security. You can use very long password, two-factor authentication. You give it access to your bank account, and then it allows you, a lot like Blur does, to create one-time use debit cards. Now, these differ from Blur a little bit in that they don't draw on a credit card. They actually debit money from your bank account when you use one, but they have quite a few different options. You can set up a burner card that is destroyed and is no longer valid two minutes after the first purchase is made on it. You can set up a single merchant card. The first time you make a purchase, let's say you have a recurring payment with your electric company. You set up a single merchant card. Once they debit that card, that's the only merchant that card can ever be used with. So another feature of privacy.com is it lets you set up a spending limit. So that can be a lifetime limit on the card. Say you only want it to be good for 500 bucks ever. As soon as that limit's hit, the card will no longer be good. Or you can set up a monthly limit. So if you've signed up for a gym membership and you need that card to be debited $25 a month to renew that gym membership, you can set up a monthly limit. After it has been reached, it won't be any good until that spending period renewed. Yeah, so um, I'm a huge fan of privacy.com. And we we did give privacy.com a very brief mention in the book. Um, the book was actually done, complete, locked in, and we were able to get in kind of a quick blurb at the end of Chapter 10. And um, I had just created my account. It was still pretty new, and I was still kind of working out the issues with it. So we gave it a brief mention, but since then, it has become kind of my go-to for a lot of things. For example, my cell phone, I have um, a privacy.com debit card created just for my cell phone. It is tied only to that cell phone carrier, and once a month, it automatically charges. So it's just so, so convenient to have that set up. Um, So anyway, big fan of it. I like it quite a bit. There are some people that complain because it's tied to your banking account, and that's true, and I completely respect that, but that's kind of how it works. Um, you know, that's, that's part of the give and take. Now, what you can do, and, and I will tell you, it's not easy, uh, you can attach it to a business checking account and provide the EIN number of that checking account. It's going to take a couple calls to privacy.com to make that happen, but uh, you can hook it up. So let's say that uh, some of you out there are New Mexico LLC owners and you've got a checking account. Maybe you've gone that far with it. You can absolutely use that checking account with the service if you have an EIN number. That's going to be the very key thing there. So uh, that's a possibility if you want to use it. But um, I think it's a great service, especially because it's free. Uh, and it's not you don't make cards for a set amount like you do with Blur. You just make cards that work, and again, they're free. So I use both. I think uh, if you're really committed to these techniques, you're going to have a Blur account and a Privacy.com account. And you can pause the cards. Yeah, great. So 
hey, I need to make, I, I don't want this card to go away because I'm going to use it later, you can pause it so no debits can be made against it while it's paused, or you can also delete it permanently so it's no longer good for anything. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, yeah, so that kind of ends chapter 10. Um, and at this point, we are actually at a really good halfway point when we talk about changes in the book. Um, now, there are 27 chapters, I believe, and we're only on chapter 10, but the majority of a lot of the changes we wanted to talk about were in the first 10 chapters. And uh, we're going to hold off until next month to pick up on chapter 11 uh, and, and finish through the rest of the book. Now, the podcast isn't over, but basically that's where we're going to stop right now as far as updates to the book, uh, the first 10 chapters. Um, now, we always want to kind of include anything new and, and uh, relevant in the privacy security world in our podcasts. So the idea now is we want to have a segment that we can talk about uh, some specific privacy discussion. And moments before recording this, Justin and I were talking offline about, you know, so what's going on? And the conversation immediately went to Yahoo and their email issues. And while this podcast may not come out for a few days, I'm sure it'll still be in the news. But Justin, can you kind of give a summary of what's going on with Yahoo right now and why do we care? Yeah, so, well, like you said, even if this comes out a few weeks later, I'm sure we can just roll to the next email provider. So basically uh, about a half a billion with a B Yahoo accounts had been breached. Uh, that was that was one piece of it. Uh, Yahoo held on to that information for a couple of years before making it public. Uh, just yesterday or the day before a story broke, that Yahoo had complied with the government to monitor all emails in near real time. And their security officer resigned over that. He now works at Facebook. Um, a, a lot of things have been happening with Yahoo. So neither of us have ever really been big fans of Yahoo Mail. I used it years and years ago when I bought my first computer way back <laughs> when. Uh, but since then, I haven't had a lot of use for Yahoo Mail, and I don't think you have either. No, not at all. And um I had my first Yahoo account, like you had said, many, many years ago, probably uh, well over a decade ago. I have not used Yahoo for any personal communication probably for two decades. Um, you know, I've got a couple of accounts. They were just burner accounts. But, you know, this is news and this is big. But also for anyone that's listening to this podcast and you're already interested in privacy and security, I think there's no excuse to be using any service like Yahoo as your primary email provider anyway. And to be fair, that goes, I believe, the same for Hotmail or Gmail. I'll go that far with it. I think that you need to be using more secure options. We talk about a lot in the book, but um, um, ProtonMail is one that Justin and I are extremely involved with. We, we communicate with them. Um, I actually, when I was consulting for Mr. Robot on season one, I got Proton Mail as Elliot's Proton or as Elliot's email provider. I believe in their product so much. Um, we talk about Proton Mail a lot in the book, but can you give just a really brief summary of what Proton Mail is and why it's better than Yahoo? Absolutely. And there's about a million ways it's better than Yahoo. Uh, so Proton Mail is a zero knowledge provider, meaning that ProtonMail itself, although your email is stored on their servers, they have no access to the content of those emails. So they couldn't comply with an order like that if they wanted to. They can't scrape your email for advertising purposes. A rogue employee could not just decide he's going to go read somebody's emails and look at their selfies. It's end-to-end -end encrypted from ProtonMail account to ProtonMail account. So that's probably the single biggest point. The encryption protocol it uses is the PGP protocol that 
pretty much everything else reputable uses. Uh, I still use full manual PGP with some of my email accounts. The problem is it's a cumbersome process and I can't get anyone to play with me. Yeah. There's like three people that will actually well, send email that way. And that's a good point. You have to have the other party to play well. So um, if I have a ProtonMail account, but you have a Gmail account and you and I are emailing back and forth, it, we might as well both have Gmail accounts at that time or Yahoo accounts or Hotmail. So you know, every once in a while, I'll get an email from a reader uh, or from a member of my live courses, email me from their Yahoo account to my ProtonMail account. And uh, it's really hard to even send a reply because uh, it's just poor practice. And that's been decided in court. When you send a reply to a Gmail account, you are accepting Google's terms and conditions. Yeah, which is crazy. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. You are a Gmail user or Yahoo or Hotmail or GMX for that matter at that point. Is there any reason anybody should still be using mainstream, anybody with an interest in security and privacy? I know Gmail has a lot going for it in convenience and features. Uh, and security. And, and security, Absolutely. Absolutely, no question about it. Uh, Privacy-wise, though, it's it's kind of a the devil's bargain. Yeah, you know, you and I have been using ProtonMail for a while, uh, and they have some free options and some premium options. Uh, I am still a free user, but I I am eyeing the premium options so I can take advantage of their advanced features. Um, you know, it comes back down to something we've always talked about, which is if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. Uh, for example, Justin and I buy our email. We pay for email access. Uh, we want that extra privacy, and sometimes that costs money. Um, so I love ProtonMail, especially when I can communicate with other ProtonMail users. When Justin and I were writing the book, sending back uh, sections back and forth, uh, Word documents, PDF files, every email that we sent the entire time of the book was through ProtonMail, from my ProtonMail account to his ProtonMail account. And it had nothing to do with a worry that people were watching us. It was, we're going to practice what we preach, and we're going to have secure communication. So I add that in there because in a moment, we're going to talk about listener questions. And uh, I told you I'd be happy to give away some invites for uh, privacy.com. I'll put one more caveat to those invites. I will not send them to a Yahoo or Hotmail or similar email account. You better be coming from something secure, such as a free ProtonMail account. And even if that means you create the account and you never use it again, I accept that at least uh, you took some action. Uh, so I have been on the paid ProtonMail since July. And I, I like it. Um, I pay $6 a month. And what I get for that, I get one custom domain. I can set up as many aliases on that as I want. That's completely unlimited. The other feature they have is I can buy ProtonMail aliases in blocks of five. And I think each block of five adds a dollar a month to the cost. So I bought 10 ProtonMail aliases. So I have 10 different ProtonMail accounts that all go to one unified inbox. I don't have to check 10 different accounts. They all just go to that one spot. Um, other features you can buy, you can buy more storage space. The default paid accounts come with a gig. Mike, I believe the new free accounts come with yeah. 500 so I, I think you and I are grandfathered in. We, we have some free accounts from a long time ago, and I think we were grandfathered in into Gigabyte for a free account, and we still have that, but I know it's going down, uh, and, and I respect them for that. It's If you want to build a quality product, you, it's going to be hard to just give away everything for free. Yeah, some, some things, like writing a small application and making it, free and open source are, are easy. There's not a ton of overhead, but running a VPN, running an email server, uh, both take an incredible amount of money to keep. Well, to keep especially it. when they're also getting DDoS attacks and stuff like that as well that they're fighting against. 
if you guys don't know what he's talking about there, that was back in November, um, mm-hmm. underwent a huge DDoS attack and raised, I want to say around $75,000 uh, through yeah. an Indiegogo campaign to, to get the necessary uh, tools to, to deal with that. Yeah, so um, I'll, you know, the one thing we always just ask our users is at least consider establishing secure communication. And maybe you don't have anyone else in your circles yet that's willing to also establish that secure communication. But until someone steps up in your circle to say that this is important, um, you know, no one's going to do this. So you be the person that establishes a ProtonMail account and convince your friends to establish secure accounts. You know, next week when we talk more about the other side of things like Signal and Wicker and all of those different things, it's going to take one person in your circle to raise that awareness. And Justin and I have both done that with all of our friends and family. And we have a surprising number of people now that communicate through Wicker and Signal or any other kind of secure communications. And that took some effort. But um, be the one to take the lead on that. Be the, be the leader in that and get your friends and family on something better than Yahoo. So one other thing with ProtonMail, it's relatively recent that we that we didn't hit on is the mobile app. That's only been around a few months now, and we're, I know you and I both use it, and we're both kind of used to using it now. ProtonMail kind of sucked to use before that because you had to log in. Yeah, and it was slow. Yeah, either through your web browser or from a computer. Uh, but the mobile app really makes that convenient. I've almost shifted to that as my primary email. I'm still holding on to my other stuff for my other custom domains and that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, the way I use it is ProtonMail is my primary personal email account. That's if I have friends, family that I want to talk to, it's going to be through ProtonMail. I still have uh, another email provider that's not encrypted end to end, but it is a paid service and I have my own domain running through it and I can archive all my business email and I only use that for business. Um, but you know, also when I write a business email, I write it with the mindset of this could be publicly viewable one day. Um, it's not secure communication. It's not me talking about secrets. It's mostly business stuff that, uh, can easily go public either through a leak or a hack or just, um, you know, someone using careless techniques. So, um, yeah, step up and get to something good. And once you have your privacy.com account, you can use that to pay for your recurring proton mail. There you go. There it is. Well, excellent. Um, you know, I, I think we could talk hours just on email alone, but, uh, we, we, we devoted quite a bit of time in the book to it and we'll talk a little bit more about it, uh, at our next podcast. Um, so, one thing that we always want to also talk about uh, in our podcast from now on is we want to know what you want to know. We want to hear questions from you. Um, and we may not have the answers, but we can research the answers and talk to the people in our circles that might have those answers. Um, what's our best pitch to get listeners to submit questions to us? Well, I think, first of all, we could give out some privacy.com advice. <laughs> we have that, yeah. Um, yeah, like Mike said, we want to make this about you guys. We want to know what you want to know. And those are the things that we want to talk about. This whole privacy thing for us is kind of a hobby as much as it is anything. So these privacy challenges, we both really enjoy figuring out the way around them. So if there's a, a privacy issue that you're having trouble with, we want to hear it. Yeah. So uh, first five people to ask us a question that we can talk about on next month's podcast and you come from a secure email account, say ProtonMail, um, was it Tutanota? I was 
butcher it. How do you pronounce yeah. the Tutanota? T Tutanota? T yeah, T U T A N O T A. It's another encrypted end-to-end email option. All we ask is uh, email, create a new email account from something more secure. Uh, If you email us from a Yahoo account, I don't think I'm going to give you the privacy.com invite. Uh, Not to be mean, just to really reward those who are going uh, a little bit further with that. So email us your questions and let's talk about how they can get a hold of us. Now, for me, um, uh, I have a couple of websites that I maintain One is called intelltechniques.com, and it's the word intel with one L and the word techniques, all one word, .com. Now, that's actually my open source intelligence side of things. I teach OSINT to a lot of agencies, and that's the kind of the art of finding hidden information online. Um, But I do have a lot of free tools, and I mention that in this show because – a lot of the tools that we talk about in the book that you should use to do your own self-background check are on that page. All the tools are free. They're all public and wide open. Uh, and I also have a new website called privacy-training.com. And you can go there and sign up for my free newsletter. It's a newsletter I put out once a month. Justin's a contributor to that. He has his own newsletter as well. Um, I have an online forum. So I have a privacy forum that you can join. And there are Right now, about 2,000 people on the forum just like you that want to talk about open source intelligence and privacy and digital security. And it's a great place to post these questions as well because people want to answer them. So um, my newsletter, my website, my forum, intelltechniques.com and privacy-training.com. And Justin also has a newsletter and blog. Can you kind of tell us about that? Yeah. So you can find me at operational-security.com. So I have a a mishmash of domain names right now that I'm trying to get standardized on. <laughs> I, man, I'm, a, I'm an impulse buyer. Uh, yeah, I hear domain you. Names. Um, you can find me at operational-security.com. Um, I, I blog frequently. I try to put out three posts a week uh, all about usually more on the security side of things, some privacy topics. Um, I also have a newsletter that contains exclusive content that you, you'll get a teaser on the blog, uh, but you'll only get the full content through the newsletter. And the sign-up is there on the website. And I do uh, training predominantly for law enforcement and military. It's uh, typically around the digital security stuff, non-standard communications, although still a little bit in the quote-unquote special activities realm. Um, if anyone's interested in that, uh, you can also find more information there on the website. Uh, there's also a contact page, so feel free to, uh, to send in your questions there or on Mike's website, and we will address those in the next episode. Yeah, I should have mentioned that. I do have a contact page on both. Uh, Yeah, send us uh, an email. As Justin said, we both have Twitter accounts, but uh, I don't want to speak for him, but I don't communicate over Twitter. So uh, if I get direct messages or messages on a public Twitter page, I don't communicate over that because I just, I, I can't, I just can't swallow my pride enough to give up my privacy and start responding in a public fashion. So email us. I think that's the best way to go. Um, All right. So we are at the end of the very first Complete Privacy and Security podcast. And uh, again, from me, uh, I'm so excited about this because Justin and I are avid podcast listeners, but we really haven't found that privacy and security podcast that we wanted to hear. 
And our goal right now is to make that podcast. Uh, again, that, that, that can't happen without you, not only as a listener, but as a contributor. So please let us know what you want to talk about. Um, if you know of a, a good guest that you would like to have on the show, if you know of someone that's making an impact in the digital security world or privacy world, let us know and we'll reach out um, and we'll probably get denied, but we'll, we'll give it a hell of a shot. So uh, Justin, I'll let you kind of close it out. But uh, for me, I just want to obviously thank all the listeners for checking us out. So again, this has been the first episode of the Complete Privacy and Security Podcast.